The gospel reading today comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. Here God's holy word. In the fifteenth year of the reign of Emperor Tiberius, with Pontius Pilate as governor of Judea, and Herod was ruler over Galilee, and his brother Philip ruler of the region of Eturia and Trachonitis, and Marcinius ruler of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the region around the world claiming a baptism of repentance for forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of the prophet Isaiah, the voice of one crying out of the words, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough ways made smooth. And all the flesh shall see the salvation of God. And John said to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the wrath of the come? Bear fruits worthy of repentance. Do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our ancestor. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Even now, the axe is lying at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. The crowds asked him, What then should we do? In reply, he said to them, Whoever has two coats must share with anyone who has none. Whoever has food must do likewise. Even tax collectors came to baptize, and they said, Teacher, what should we do? He said to them, Collect no more than the mountain scribe for you. Soldiers also asked him, And what should we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from those from anyone by threats of, of false accusation. Be satisfied with your wages. As the people were filled with expectation and were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Messiah, John answered, all of them I saying, I baptize you with God. The one who is more powerful than I is I am not worthy to untie the thong of the sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His looming fork is up in his hand to clear the threshing floor to gather the wheat into the grave. With the chaff, he will burn with an unquenchable fire. So, with many other exhortations, he proclaimed the good news to the people. The Lord had blessing and understanding to the reading and hearing of the Holy Spirit. Holy God, we thank you for this portion of the story. We ask God that you would. Send your spirit upon us and allow us to understand the story and then be able to apply it to our lives. We ask all this. When we lived in Florida, uh, Christmas decorations were kind of a really big. Uh, I don't know if you've ever visited Florida during December, but everything is that. It's not really much space for anything left undecorated. It's kind of a weird thing to be. Warm, uh, you know, enjoying the weather and seeing Christmas Day. That's that's kind of there's one particular town that I drove from the way to work, and the whole town had red banners um, with a dog and an olive branch on it, and underneath it said peace. And so, when I was thinking about this sermon this week, I thought, 
that's kind of a decent thing for us to kind of start thinking about this understanding of part of Adam. And so I want to know how many people, when you see a dove with an olive branch in its mouth, how many do you think of them? Oh, no. <laughs> right? I mean, that's kind of where we have generalized understanding of that. Uh, and when we do that, we're wrong. Because the weird part about this is uh, olives, uh, you know, the olive tree itself, a, a dove probably can never carry the whole branch. So if you look at Genesis, it actually says that the dove, the dove brought back a leaf. But how the dove and the olive branch came together uh, was actually because of the persecution of Christians uh, in, under, under Roman opposition, right? And so for Christians who were living as part of a world where the Pantheon was the order of the day, always um, they had to hide in the caves of Africa. And so they would look to an idea and they would say, well, Noah is the most peaceful so the olive and branch and dove and the mind. Now here's what's weird. The olive branch actually in ancient Greece, the, the way the story is told, the way that actually discussed it, that Athena and Poseidon were battling for which God would be the God of Adam. And so Poseidon took his trident and came around this large body of salt water, people couldn't have any water to drink. And so Athena said, well, that's not the right way to get worship. So she planted the very first olive tree. That's the legend, right? That's what it is. And so the, the olives that come from Athens are godly blessed, kind of godly blessed olives. And so the people of Athens then, but yet, uh, all the Olympians, all the Olympians, would be wrapped in olive branches because it was a time of peace, not a time of war. And brides would even carry olive branches as their flowers because that was symbolizing that they would have time to tend to the olives because their husband uh, wasn't going to be there. And so somehow or another, the Greeks and the Christians put that all together. And so in those catacombs, you have pictures of doves with a full olive branch. And this is really a story of persecution that ended with the Edict of Milan in 13, which I'm sure all of you know. The Edict of Milan, of course, is when Christianity recognized as a Christian of Rome. And so when that took place, Christians were able to cover And so our symbolism as a Christian history um, ceases looking at the and Starts looking at it. And now, it's a common acceptance of peace. And I think it's really neat that that's the history of two different cultures kind of grabbing onto stories of the past to create a symbol. And I think if you look at our text this morning, that's kind of a little bit about what's going on with John the Baptizer. Now, the first few verses, I think, help us understand a little bit of the conflict that we might initially miss. Tiberius, Pontius Pilate, Herod, Philip, Licinius, Annas, and Caiaphas. Roman, Roman, half Jew, half Jew, Roman, Jew, Jew. So in that little section of scripture that Luke is writing, he's, he's kind of talking about all of the leadership of this area 
all of the leadership of the known world at the time, and how it's really pitted against each other. All these political figures are typically historically hailed as great, at least powerful, if not great. Yet John is in the wilderness, and God gave him a message. God didn't go to the high priest. God didn't go to the father-in-law of the high priest at the temple. Nor did God come to the rulers of the land established by Rome. He came to a simple man with no territory, simply someone who lived in the wilderness. And God told him to proclaim baptism for the repentance of sins. This happened in preparation of the coming of the Lord, so that all flesh would see the salvation of God. Now, this baptism is not really like what we did with Braxton a few weeks ago. This is not a Christian baptism. Baptism has been a part of the Middle East religions for a long, long time. Uh, Even today, uh, the the Islamic faith, you wash yourself before you pray, and it's a way to kind of symbolize a washing away of anything that could defile the temple. Um, in, In Judaism, it was called a Mishnah, and so you had to ritually bathe before you could go to the temple as well. And so that's kind of what's happening here, is this, this principle of, of washing away um, something that's going to cause, cause, cause things to be defiled. But really it's about what's defiling the person itself. The wealthy uh, people of Jerusalem would never have thought of going into the Jordan River. Uh, any of you that have ever been to Israel or seen anything about Israel on TV, it's disgusting. Like rats run up and down the sides of it, large, huge, huge rats. It's basically about the, the size of, you could almost jump across parts of it. Some parts of it are bigger, but for the most part, it's a kind of nasty piece of water. And so the fact that people, even then, would go into this water to be cleansed is a radical idea. The wealthy had pools for themselves made in Jerusalem, and so they would never ever take this trek out to the Jordan. And the word that's there is for repentance is kind of a neat, neat word. Um, we kind of have, in the last maybe couple hundred years, have thought of repentance as, as maybe feeling sorry. Um, and that's not really what this word means. The word means, uh, the word is metanoia, and kind of what it means is you recognize something and then you turn from it and go the opposite direction. And so as John is calling them into the river to be baptized in this kind of gross body of water, they would be baptized, they would be dunked like the Baptists do, right? And then they would come up out of the water and they would walk away. Woo! They would walk away, right? And so that's a way of truly changing your position in life. And that's what he's talking about. Like do something, not just feel something. That's the idea of repentance. It has very little to do with one's emotions. It's about changing actions. And Luke is all about repentance. Pretty much half of the uses of the word repentance in the New Testament come from the Gospel of Luke. So he's all about this turning, this change that takes place. For Luke, people needed a turning away from Tiberius and Pilate and Antipas Indeed, John's purpose was precisely to call the people to a new path entirely. And how can that happen? 
I think he's probably the worst evangelist in the history of the church when he starts out by calling all the people that come to him to get baptized a brood of vipers. Do you want to join that club? Like, this is how lowly I think of you. But people did. And then he says, from now on, what God's message is, is it's not about your bloodline. You don't just get around and get to sit around and say, well, I'm Jewish and God loves me and so I can do anything I want. That's kind of what the hierarchy of the temple would say, at least for themselves. From now on, it actually requires you to, to do some kind of good in the world. You don't just say something, you have to do something. And so the crowds, being crowds, said, well, what should we do? Well, if you have two coats, give one away. You don't need two coats, it doesn't get that cold here. Tax collectors, well, what can we do? We've got a bunch of coats. Well, stop taking more money than you need. Just take what's required. Soldiers, stop extorting money from people. Be satisfied with what you're paid by the temple. And the people were filled with expectation and excitement. This was, this was possibly the guy that could be the Messiah. He speaks with such passion that maybe, maybe, just maybe, maybe, John could be the Messiah, the person who would bring about peace. And John probably heard a little of that scuffle and said, listen, I baptize with water, but the one who will baptize with authority is coming after me. He will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will gather all to the granary. I think most everyone in the story had in common uh, this one thing. It was an attitude or a hatred at worst, maybe a discontent with the established order. That's why John had a following. Uh, we also know that John's following <clears throat> eventually followed Jesus. Jesus took some of his disciples as his own. People were disgruntled. They were upset. There were many insurrections against Rome and against the Jewish leadership. Jesus was not the only one to kind of speak out against both of those people. Now Luke differs from the other gospel writers and has John say something that the crowds um, will specifically understand about baptism. It's about bringing peace in the world. And just like I asked the kids, what, what do we think of when we say the word peace? By definition, it's the absence of hostility, the lack of violent conflict, it's harmony. It's a gift that Christ gives to humanity, and one that we can't really create on our own. We often have difficulty in liking in other people uh, the things that we see that are wrong with the world, much less being able to love them. We see what people do in the world and how they are, and we Christians mostly kind of say something like, what is this world coming to? I've also heard, what is this town coming to? Maybe even, what is this church coming to? What is this person? What's going on? There's a great quote from an Anglican cleric. His name is John Stott, and he said this, We should not ask what is wrong with the world, for that diagnosis has already been given. Rather, we should ask, what has happened to the salt and the light? Christians are the problem. And as the saying goes, I are one. 
At some point in time, we have to recognize the ministry of Jesus and see that God's plan for the world is the same plan as the one God had for Israel. We are the light in the world. My mentor, when I was working in Philadelphia, my favorite boss ever, it was an amazing place to, to be under his leadership, but I would, I would get frustrated. As the youth director, you know, my focus was just on middle school and high school kids. And uh, at one particular time, we were having this building uh, renovation, and the kids couldn't meet in the youth group. And I was, man, I was frustrated by it. And it was the first room th- finished, and so I thought we would get to go down there and enjoy all the stuff that was going to take place. And, and youth group in Philly has to end before April because everybody plays lacrosse and nobody comes to church. Um, and so it was going to be frustrating because we weren't going to be able to get into the youth room until like mid-May because the contractors had decided and some of the people on the, the building committee decided that that was a place that they could store their stuff for the work that was done in the rest of the church. And man, I mean, I was hopping mad. I was so mad. I was disgruntled. I was hurt. I took it very personally that we had done all this great fundraising for the youth group. We bought six huge leather couches. We bought this flat screen tree V. It was, it was our, it was our like purpose to get in there and to just be able to have some fun. He invited me to his house and he poured me a little scotch and he said, you know, when you are hurt or when you are offended or you're in opposition to someone, um, really what's happening is you're not recognizing the God in that person. Because, Mark, we're created in God's image. And so God has breathed life into us. And so the only thing that is really hurting when you're disgruntled or hurt or offended is you. Because you're suffering at God. And so what I want you to do is everybody that you just talked about, and you have, you, you have a little bit of a right to be mad at those people because, yeah, they didn't think about the kids. But... I want you to pray for that person, for all these people that you've named, people that you're upset about. Because if you're praying for somebody, God is not going to change them. But God is going to change your perception of them. Because if you're praying for somebody, you you can't hate them. You can't be mad at them. Eventually, you come to a time of peace. And friends, I think this is the peace of Christ. And if you don't believe me, you can look at something in Colossians 3. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. Since you are members of one body, you were called to peace. When we pray for someone else with whom we happen to maybe be in a disagreement, God alters our heart. And we need to be willing for God to bring about peace within us. But that can only happen when we're willing to be altered by God. If we go through life knowing how right we are and how uh, wrong the other person is, then we're not really willing to live a peaceful life. The interesting story about Christians is that the catacombs were filled with images from Noah's story. And it was because there was no peace. But then when it became a recognized religion, the imagery of Noah completely went away. 
And it wasn't something that they needed to stop praying for peace as they had prayed before. But because they were no longer afraid, they didn't pray for peace and they focused on a completely different section of the faith. It's easy to forget to pray for peace when we're not at war. But I think God is calling us, just like John did in the wilderness, to turn and walk in a new direction. Peace requires actions and willingness for great change and the melding of ideas. So, church, let's be the church to help bring about peace in the world. Only possible with the help of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen and amen. Now let us stand and declare what it is that we believe in the recitation of the Nicene Creed. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made, who for us and our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man, and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and on the third day he rose again according to the Scriptures. He ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of the Father, and he shall come again with glory to judge the quick and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. You may be seated. It's now time for us to return a portion of our gifts in the form of tithes and offerings.
Let us pray. Holy and gracious God, we thank you so much for the many gifts and blessings that you've given to us in this life. God, we have returned a portion of these gifts to you now, and we ask that you would bless them and bless us, that we may bless others. All this we ask in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Now, Jesus taught us we were both 
Let us pray. Holy God, we thank you for this sweet foretaste of your kingdom come. We ask God that you would bless this to our bodies. We thank you, Lord, for the grace imparted to us through this sacrament. God, this day we are mindful of our need to bring peace in this earth. Lord, we often just think of peace at times of war. But God, we also know that you ask us to usher in peace with our neighbors, with our families, with our enemies. So God, we ask that you would be diligent in your patience with us as we try to bring about peace. We pray, God, for leaders of warring nations that they would seek peaceful solutions we pray for a day where the order of the day is not war, but peace. We pray, God, for our military and for those who have answered that call to defend our country. And we pray for a day that they are no longer needed. We pray for their safety, God. And at the same time, we also know that you ask us to pray also for our enemies. And so we do. Lord, we ask that as we are in the preparation of celebrating the arrival of your son, that you would... Give us a sense of hope and peace. Allow us, Lord, to look forward to the joy of your coming into our lives. God, because we are a community of faith, we pray for those who are seated to our right and to our left, in front of us and behind us. And in the stillness of this moment, Lord, we pray for ourselves. Holy God, we are amazed by your grace and the glory of your ways. We thank you that you have called us to be your people. Guide and direct us, Lord, especially as we leave this place this day, to be your people of peace. All this we ask in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Please stand for our final hymn as you are able. While we are waiting, come.
It is not easy to pray for your enemies. Any of you have ever tried to do that, that's, that's a really tough thing to do. Um, but it's something that I think all of us should experience at least once in our lives. Um, that we should really diligently try to pray for someone with whom we have a disagreement. It, it, it changes the way that you experience life. It really, truly does. And it's, it's something that I wish that none of us ever had to do. I wish that none of us ever would have that. But because we're humans, we're likely going to, to be frustrated at some time or another with another human. That's kind of the nature of being humans, right? The survival of the fittest means that we want to be better than our neighbor. And sometimes it's just easier to, to ignore it and, and not do anything about it. And eventually that kind of becomes like the, the antithesis of peace within your soul. You think you can kind of ignore the conflict that you're experiencing. In our text today, John very much confronted the conflict head on. Brood of vipers is something that I hope none of you are ever called. But he's trying to get people to change their ways and he just calls them for what they are. You can't just sit idly by and accept everything that comes to you because you think you're God's gift to earth. That's a hard thing to hear when you're promised, the way the Jewish people were, promised to, to always be God's people. John said, you got to do something. Get out there and do something. And so I think that's our charge this day. We need to get out there and do something. Help make this world a better place in the name of Christ. Now receive the blessing of the triune God, the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. May it be with us all until we meet again, either here or as glorious kingdom come. Amen and amen. Happy Sunday.